Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, a recorded few in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, January 9th, we are studying 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 2. In today's text, St. Paul informs the Corinthians about his affliction in Asia, which had affected his travel plans, but ultimately had led him to rely on God who raises the dead. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Pastor Flammy, we are in the second text that we've got for this study on 2 Corinthians. Talk to us about any context we should know about this epistle and what Paul said so far leading up to our text. So like we were talking about before the show started, um, it's really easy to see 2 Corinthians in the greater context of 1 Corinthians. St. Paul is dealing with matters of pastoral care, not just grand theological concepts that are very abstract, but he talks about how law and gospel are applied in the life of a congregation. And uh, so that, I think, continues to serve as, as important context for writing this letter, which is, at the end of the day, a pastoral letter. Um, we see at the beginning of our passage today that he wants to inform them of things that have happened to him that he thinks they should know about so that they can pray for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, like, I, like you said before, you have had another guest on here that talked about the possibility of uh, some other letters that might form some extra context uh, that we just don't have access to, maybe a letter that was sent before 1 Corinthians, another one that was sent be- between uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians. The, the fact of the matter is, I think there's sufficient context here for us to uh, get from St. Paul's writings the spiritual comfort that was meant originally for the congregation in Corinth, and it also con- continues to instruct and to bless the church today, especially pastors who are trying to figure out, how do I deal with this touchy situation where somebody has sinned, somebody's being called to repentance, and and I have to be very careful with when I speak to the people involved and how I speak to them. Hmm. All right, so with those thoughts in mind, let's go ahead and jump right into this text. There's going to be plenty of context to bring out as we read and discuss. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us. 
that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has, put his, who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And that's where we will end our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 2. So Pastor Flamey, in the first verse of our text, Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, which it reminds me of some of the things he said in 1 Corinthians. Usually he, he was going to bring up a practice or doctrine where he says, we want you to, to, to know, or we don't want you to be uninformed. Here he doesn't want them to be ignorant about the affliction that he had experienced in Asia. Talk to, about, talk to us about the, what do, we, what do we know about this affliction that he experienced in Asia? Well, he was stoned in Lystra before he even founded the congregation in Corinth, right? So we know that that's not the particular affliction that he's talking about. Uh, this could be, I suppose it's possible, the riots in Ephesus, and maybe there was just more to that riots in that situation that, that uh, St. Paul left out in his account, uh, from his account in Acts. Uh, I do find it really, really interesting that it is necessary for this Corinthian congregation to know exactly what Paul has suffered for them and for the whole church. He makes a big deal about this when he talks about the danger of the super apostles at the end of the epistle, right? At the end of the epistle, he says, uh, you remember when I talked about my sufferings before? Let me get somewhat detailed here for you. Hmm. Uh, and, and there he, you know, it goes through the really famous list where he talks about uh, he received countless beatings, imprisonments, often death five times. He received... At the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. At night and a day, I was adrift at sea, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so his point is to build up all of the trials, the tribulations, the afflictions, and the sufferings uh, to boast of his weakness, because that just exalts the strength and uh, the might of God who continues to bless his church through this proliferation of his word and his sacrament which is the true foundation of the church. This is necessary for us to understand so that, you know, the, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel always comes with a price, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't, it, I, I suppose that, you know, Fort Wayne seminary guys who come out and go out into the parish, they're, they're a suffering lot. They like to talk about their sufferings. <laughs> Maybe it's different from, with you St. Louis guys. You know, they set you up for, 
for lives of ease and prosperity. But <laughs> the Fort Wayne guys, it doesn't matter where they go. They could end up fine with plenty fine salary, a nice parsonage, you know, plenty of food on the table. And still they're oh, suffering, talking about how my congregation hates me. The guys in my circuit are so bad, you know. And, <laughs> and, and even though it's, it's a little bit ridiculous and funny sometimes, it, it, it is maybe helpful for the Christian congregation to be aware that their pastors, when, they're, when, they're, when they preach the gospel, when they teach, especially in those circumstances that, that bring up sin and repentance and restoration to the Christian congregation, these are high spiritual and emotional stakes, you know? And, and the pastor and anyone involved doesn't go into it without suffering some wounds and needing healing from the Lord. And that healing, first and foremost, of course, comes from the forgiveness of sins uh, and, and, uh, and also through other kinds of reconciliation that happens between the parties later on. Uh, here, St. Paul is talking about a very physical cost that comes along with the preaching of the gospel. So he's not joking when he talked about the lashes, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the stonings. And even today, not so much here in the United States, of course, but in other parts of the world, these are daily occurrences. For those people who are bold enough to preach the word of God, imprisonments, beatings, even death, you know, and we we cannot forget that as Western Christians who are, we're, I mean, we're so used to ease <laughs> and, uh, and comfort in our Christian lives. It's hard for us to imagine that our confession of Christ or the, the, the pastor's sermon on Sunday would bring about, you know, violence, if not from the states, then from the surrounding community and the families of those who are converting to Christianity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this this affliction that he brings up, that he experienced in Asia, whether it's that riot in Ephesus from Acts chapter 19 that you mentioned, or something that we just don't have recorded in the scriptures, is a very severe one. He, he talks about that they, they despaired of life itself, they felt that they had received the sentence of death, which I suppose it wouldn't be too hard to imagine that Paul was actually sentenced to death at some point. As you mentioned, he he was stoned on one occasion at least. So, I mean, this is this is a level of affliction that, as you said, many of us just don't have that same sort of experience. But Paul says the Lord was was teaching them something through this affliction that they were receiving. Yeah, he, that's absolutely right. He was teaching them that uh, the the success of the apostolic ministry. And the success of the church upon this earth isn't contingent upon whether or not Paul is crafty enough to figure out a way of escape. <laughs> but instead, it seems as if the opposite had happened in this particular circumstance. Maybe it was a court trial. Uh, I, it's, that, that would be very interesting. One of the scholars I was reading said it, it definitely wasn't that. I have no idea why he was so against it. But, I mean, the main point is like every avenue of escape, every avenue of help was cut off. And it seemed as if everything was against them to the point where they may as well be dead for uh, how their work, their ministry, their and uh, their aspirations for the future were coming to an abrupt end, you know. Mm. And yet the Lord raises the dead. This made me remember how uh, God shows himself as the raiser of the dead, even from Hebrews chapter 11, <laughs> where he raised the bodies of Abraham and Sarah, Right in faithfulness to his promise to give them a son, Isaac. Uh, and so God demonstrates this particular aspect of his mercy, and it's a central aspect of his mercy and his salvation, that he gives life and hope where in, in 
the context outside of the knowledge of God and the comfort of his gospel, there can only be death and despair, you know. And this is great for both the Corinthians to know and for St. Paul to continue to learn uh, throughout his missionary work that despite all of the, the thorns in his flesh and despite all of the beatings and the sufferings and the spiritual afflictions he has to endure, it is Christ who is carrying him forward. And uh, he will give life and success where at any human level, it seems like there must only be death and defeat. So I just finished. I'm, tr- I'm really not trying to plug something that I did. <laughs> Sorry. I just finished doing this 10-part series on YouTube on church history, right? It's not good, guys. So if you're <laughs> tempted to go look at it, don't expect much, all right? so I'm looking th- it up right now. No. I'm put it on okay. my playlist. All right. So <laughs> with my uh, so during this 10-part series, what the good thing that came out of it isn't so much what I said on camera, which is kind of ridiculous, but instead what I researched and discovered, which is that it seems like every few centuries or so, the Christian church is on the brink of absolute ruin and destruction, mm. in that by every human standard, the church ought not to exist. And it's a true miracle that it does. Uh, consider the success and the victory of the Arians over the Orthodox party uh, during the years of Athanasius, you know? The, the Arians had numerical superiority. Uh, they had the ear of the emperor and his powerful right arm to smash their enemy churches and to send their opponents into exile or even imprisonment and death. And yet, against you know the rise of Arianism, against the Orthodox confession that the Son of God, right, is at the, God as in the same sense that the Father is God, uh, the Lord, uh, uh, you know, he he had the victory. He had the he had the final say that his truth won the day, and not the uh, the human doctrines of the Arians. You know, so also with the evangelicals, the, the the Lutherans, we should have been crushed by the Pope's armies during the Thirty Years' War. You know, by every measure, we we were outgunned, outnumbered, defeated in battle of, uh, after battle after battle. The Lutheran Confession ought not to exist, and yet here we are. God be praised. Mm-hmm. After the Enlightenment. Like 200 years ago, I was reading, uh, during the time of the Wesley Brothers, they sound like a pop band, the Wesley Brothers. (laughs) I mean, part of the scandal was that uh, if you went up to a clergy person in the Church of England and asked, is there a God? You would probably, more than likely, get from this clergy person, this enlightened clergy person, yes, no, maybe, I'm not really sure, you know. And and so there was no real Christian faith. Uh, There was great grave doubts when it came to the veracity of the gospel, let alone the nature of our salvation, which back then was taught as merely ethical. God saves those who are very, very good. And against that, of course, the Wesley brothers discovered the writings of Luther long after Luther and Melanchthon had died <laughs> and, and began to preach the gospel again before they slipped up and kind of started mixing together justification and sanctification in their own way. And yet it was a vast improvement compared to the sort of the dead moralisms that were being preached, not only in England at that time, but in Europe. And so it seems age after age after age, the church is always leading up to the brink of destruction, death, and ruin. And the Lord fights for his church. The gospel reappears and continues to save the souls of many. Uh, So it is indeed uh, true that we rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Well, and you could go backwards the other way, too, into the Old Testament and see how, you know, you, you mentioned what the writer of Hebrews says, and that's Paul, by the way, is the writer of Hebrews. Thank I think you. It, yeah. Uh, 
what he says about Abraham and Sarah, about how the Lord even raised Isaac from the dead in that same chapter, but even just thinking about the way that the Lord would, you know, he led his people right up to the Red Sea, where it seemed that they were as good as dead, and leads them through the Red Sea. Over and over again, you have these pictures of death and resurrection, and it's, that's essentially what they are, death and resurrection. The Lord is the one who raises the dead throughout history, and this is even a, a connection then between this epistle and 1 Corinthians. Even if there is a, an intervening epistle that we don't have, remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul at length talked about the importance of the resurrection of the dead that has been accomplished in Christ already as the first fruits, and now we are awaiting. So that by the end of that chapter, then, well, what do we do with this? Be immovable, be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because it's not in vain. Here he now applies that to his own apostolic ministry at the beginning of, of 2 Corinthians. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what a beautiful foundation for our Christian faith, the knowledge of God, the raiser of the dead, especially in the resurrection of Christ our Lord, and in the hope of our own resurrection. You know, otherwise, you know, what's the point of the Christian martyrs who bear witness to Christ even to the point of death? You know, their victory transcends death because it's contingent not on what man can do. They can't stop death or persecution. But God is the one who gives the uh, the victory, who swallows up death with his grace. Hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, that was great. I'm glad that you mentioned the Red Sea. I mean, what a beautiful picture of, of death and resurrection, which is exactly what we receive through our own parting of the Red Sea, which is baptism, mm. you know? Uh, so uh, have you been to the Holy Land? Have you been on the I, tour I yet? I have not. No, I have not. So you know how everybody is always talking about, well, the Israelites didn't really pass over or pass through the Red Sea. They went through this marshy area called the Reed Sea. <laughs> Everybody's bought into this higher critical nonsense. And the Reed Sea was a marshy, wet, uh, muddy area separating, of course, uh, Africa from the Sinai Peninsula because it's impossible, obviously, for the people of Israel to have fled to the sea. Moses wouldn't have done such a thing. That's irrational, unless, in fact, it was the Lord's will that they be faced with certain death on every side. Now, what's kind of cool is that around, uh, like, the seven, or, uh, like the springs and the 70 palms of Moses and this, these sorts of things on the Sinai side of the peninsula, it quickly becomes clear that there is plenty of room for the Israelites to have fled south and to end up on uh, the Egyptian side of the Gulf of Suez with this great sea separating them from safety on the Sinai side. And what's funny is it, it makes sense of the scriptures that say that the, mount, that the land and also the Egyptian armies were hemming in the Israelites. I know we're not talking about Exodus, but I think it's important for the people to understand, all right? Yes. So you have yes. the mountains hemming them in on one side, on the African side. To the north, you have Pharaoh coming, right? Uh, and then to the east, you have the sea. And there's nowhere but death in every direction mm. until God acts and brings them through death and into life by passing through the waters of the sea. Uh, yeah, just absolutely beautiful and amazing. And it convinced me, instead of dismaying me or making me wonder, did the Israelites really pass through the sea? I mean, it pretty much helped me to, to see and to understand it was absolutely possible. And it was by no means an impossibility, as sometimes we, we hear from our modern Bible commentators. Now, as we think about our own sufferings, our own afflictions today, as you pointed out, very few of, of us in the United States face the level of affliction that Paul describes here. 
But regardless of what cross the Lord sends our way, how he chooses to to lead us toward death and then out of life, how how is it that the fact that he is the one who raises from the dead strengthens us in the midst of our sufferings as Christians now? Yeah, so this is something that we also have to avoid in thinking that there's no such thing as Christian affliction for us, no cross for us to bear, just because we have worldly a, a worldly plenty, right? There's temptation both in poverty and outward affliction, and there's temptation from the, the more subtle kinds of affliction uh, or the more subtle kinds of attack and even the, the affliction that comes from being surrounded by too many riches, right? Uh, and so each and every person is confronted with uh, a terrified conscience because of sin. Each and every person is, is met with the reality of their death, right? And Satan stands ready with the demons to tempt and to torment with despair the people who face uh, both the wrath of God, right, and what their death means. Uh, and, and, and because of that, it's so necessary for us, either in the Christian West or East, North or South, to understand that no matter the, no matter the affliction or what, in what form it takes based on the context in which you live or the details of your own life, uh, God has proven himself faithful for the saints in the past, and his promise that you find of his faithfulness in the time of death and his rescue from death through resurrection is for you. You know, It's not for the Christians who are uh, on the other side of the world. Uh, it's not for, you know, uh, uh, even the Christians. I mean, we're Americans, so we're tempted to say the prospering Christians are the ones who are doing it right. That's not necessarily true. Uh, it's not even to say that, you know, that it's, it's uh, for the, the Christians in the West who have it all figured out. Not at all. Uh, the promise of the resurrection is the foundation for the church in every time and in every place. Uh, and, and we give thanks to God for that, because otherwise we would have long ago lost hope and despaired. You know? Absolutely. So Paul has this hope, and together with the, the apostles, his workers, he knows that as God has delivered in the past, he will deliver again. So on him, he sets the hope. Verse 11 really struck me as I was reading this, that, that he calls for the Corinthians to pray for him, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Talk about the the prayers of the saints, rightly understood here in this verse. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a poorly understood sense of this, and I think this was brought up by one of the commentators I was reading, and that is, if we get enough people all praying for the same thing, it'll happen, right? And then you end up with these crazy Pentecostals who try to do something ghastly you remember this like in florida a few years ago they tried to resurrect a small girl who had died by all like getting as many people as possible to pray as fervently as they could and then nothing happened and what did it do? become a, a reason to shake and to destroy the faith of many right mm. this is not what this is about uh saint paul could very well have been killed right through the affliction that came upon him uh, he is telling the, the 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 corinthians to give thanks to god for God's work through St. Paul, through the ministry of the gospel that has come to them and to other, play, uh, to other people around the world so that they could also gain this resurrection hope that cannot be defeated by death, right? And so to say, thank you, Lord, for delivering St. Paul, you're, you're not, you're not uh, for, twisting God's arm to do something that he otherwise wouldn't have done. Instead, you said, instead you're acknowledging that through St. Paul, the Lord has this amazing ministry of preaching, teaching, forgiving sins, and bringing souls out of death to life. Hmm. I, I think I, I appreciate those clarifications so that we don't misunderstand prayer as 
like you described, perhaps you have to reach a critical mass. If I only have 20 people praying for me, I won't get it. But if I get to 21, then suddenly God has to to answer my prayers. That's that's not the idea of, of prayer that he has in mind here. And we want to avoid that, because that has shaken the faith of many. At the same time, I think we also do well to see that Paul calls their prayers a, a help to him. Yes. And to, to never underestimate the the help that prayer truly is, the encouragement that it was to Paul. That, I mean, it's actually, you know, what what can I do more than praying is sometimes the, the question that'll be asked. Well, please do the praying. By all means, do the praying, because that's the help that w- that is needed. Absolutely, because God can supply, especially the material things, right? When when we as, as humans can't figure out the means or the ways to get it to, to those who need it. But the Lord is able to accomplish much, and the righteous and the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, as St. James says. And he's right about that. Uh, for the sake of the prayers of the saints, no doubt our country is being held together, even though it should have flown apart decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> for the sake of the prayers of the saints, we have churches in our towns, and the gospel continues to be preached among us. So uh, prayer is efficacious, and we should trust that the Lord hears us, and answers us as a, a, a loving father answers his children according to their needs. Absolutely. Uh, and so St. Paul is certainly helped by the prayer of the saints, and the prayers of the saints also can give thanks to God for the ministry that is done through Paul and the other apostles as well. Yeah, this, this seems like a very important verse for us to keep in mind when we hear the scoffers of our age talk about, well, you you Christians, you you pray— I'm going to do something about it. And and a verse oh, yeah. like this, I think, is a, a bulwark against that attack of the, the scoffers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in today's, as, as the nuns continue to proliferate throughout our society, uh, piety is still going to exist, but it's going to take on a different shape. And it's probably going to take on a shape that is distinct from offering up petitions to the divine power or being, whatever that may be. Instead, it's going to take the form of, as we've already seen, of activism. Uh, people worship uh, through Giving Tuesday. This, of course, is a reference to my ill-fated issues, etc. interview, my one and only on Giving Tuesday. It was so bad. So bad. Don't listen to that one. It's really bad. Anyways, but it is. Like, if I'm a secular person and I'm trying to, again, fulfill this innate desire uh, to uh, obtain righteousness, how am I going to get it? Uh, through my works, through my works righteousness, of course, right? And and uh, and so they're going to scoff and laugh at anybody who offers up a prayer and for that person to think that their prayer is an efficacious good work. And for the Christians, it absolutely is. There's nothing better that we could do for our country, our families, our churches right now than to pray for them and to implore the Lord's help to give when we don't have the power to give, you know? I mean, so many of us don't have the means to alleviate the suffering that we see, but the Lord has the means. Of course he does. And he doesn't necessarily have to give it through your hands. He could give it through the hands of the others. That's not to say that you're absolved from not helping your brother in, in, in his need if you do have the means. Of course you should, right? But there, we confront so many situations where we're absolutely powerless, where we absolutely don't have any control. And for so many of the members of my own congregation, I see that driving them to frustration and anger. When, in, when instead, you know, the Christian response is, this is an opportunity for prayer. You know, Absolutely. this is, a, since I am thwarted in every human way, this is exactly the time when I say to the Lord, Lord, this is in your hands. Uh, and so have mercy according to these various needs. 
Yeah, yeah. You must help us by prayer. And so we still help by prayer today as Christians. We're going to keep looking at this text from 2 Corinthians on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Brian Flammy this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 9th. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 2 with Pastor Brian Flammy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the, to the break, we got up to about verse 12, where Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. We have this boasting word, which Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians, we should only boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what is what is the boasting language that he's using here in 2 Corinthians? Yeah, he's plainly contradicting himself, right? No. <laughs> That's, so, that, that answer is off the table. Right. <laughs> so so what's funny here uh, is is that I, I, I have this conversation all the time with the members of my church, you know, because we're so used to saying, I'm so proud of my son, or I'm so proud of my daughter, I'm even proud of the things that I did in my youth or I continue to do. And so as a pastor, I'm always listening to the language of my people and engaging them in conversations to kind of steer the language into a sanctified place. (laughs) That is, instead of seeing ourselves and our own sufficiency as sort of the bedrock of our, our great successes, instead we recognize that each and every one of those successes that I take great pleasure in come from God, right? And, and according to his grace and love for me. And so even if I boast, and I should boast for certain things, as we're going to mention here, I'm going to boast in the, uh, in the Lord and, and, uh, and according to what the Lord has done for me. So I, I boast not of myself, but of you know, the great love and compassion and help the Lord has given me. Here it talks about St. Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus, or these, these other men who are laboring on behalf of the Corinthian congregation, it says that their boast is concerning the testimony of their conscience, the testimony of their conscience, which I find very interesting. So what? how do we understand the testimony of conscience? Well, first of all, what is conscience? A lot of the lexicons out there will say it's a kind of dual knowing, a knowing alongside. Uh, that's helpful. I think it's also helpful to see it uh, described at the beginning of Romans as a faculty of judgment. A faculty of judgment. That is, it accuses or it excuses. 
It's the, the courtroom of the soul, so to speak. And, and a good conscience, one that's worthy of boasting of, comes about in two ways, or rather you can say it in this way, that the conscience is made good in, in two ways. First and most importantly, the conscience is made good by its reconciliation with God on account of the righteousness of Christ, right? And so the, the conscience, uh, which had been at war uh, against the person through either excusing the sins that are committed or accusing the person because of the sins that are committed, is now set at peace and at rest because the blood of Christ has been proclaimed and, and now it is trusted for salvation, right? And then second, and, and also importantly, the good conscience is shaped by and aware of God's law and the necessity uh, that in response to the peace that we have with God, now we labor to give peace and mercy uh, to those that, that live around us, you know? And so, uh, uh, and, and so we, we also have a good conscience with regard to conduct. I think that the Lutherans are really good about articulating the first part of a good conscience that we should boast of. You know, I could say, I, I am at peace because Christ has died for me, right? That's the testimony of a good conscience in the first sense. We also ought to be able to say, as Lutherans, that I have a good conscience with regard my conduct towards you. And this is where we really have a hard time. We're, we're so used to uh, acknowledging our sin, which is absolutely true. You know, we're burdened with the flesh until we die. That sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that I am incapable as a human being on this side of the grade of performing any good works, of having a good conscience towards anyone else in this life. That my life, the, the relationships I have with my family, my friends, my community, my church members is defined in by more by sin than it is than by the, you know, the love that's commanded by God's law. Well, St. Paul doesn't have our weird Lutheran hangups. He just doesn't. Uh, for him, he has a very thoroughgoing knowledge of God's law, the command to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself, and he acts accordingly, right? And because he has a peaceful conscience with regard to sin, he is freed. He is freed to absolutely love his neighbor as himself. And so what he says to the Corinthians, I've done everything I can for you. I have a good conscience towards you. He means it. And God, God grant us to also be able to say the same things towards one another. Wouldn't that be wonderful as a pastor? To say to your congregation someday that it, like when you're retiring or maybe the moment before you die in the pulpit or before you get a call or after you get a call and you're going to leave them, uh, you say to them, I have a good conscience with regard to you, right? Uh, I, and my good conscience testifies that I have indeed preached God's law, his gospel, and I have instructed you in, in, in his word of truth. That is a joyful and a wonderful thing and something indeed you should be able to boast in on that day. And just as St. Paul is here boasting of it with regards to the Corinthians. Well, how does, how does that boast then lead to the, the mutual boasting by the end of that paragraph in verse 14 that will happen on the last day? Man, I wish I knew. Uh, so this is, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this and, and uh, I know I sent you my notes like two seconds before the show started, but in, it was in there in the notes, like what exactly is this? Well, first of all, uh, it is not our sins that follow us into the judgment. Because our sins have been died for by Christ. They've been covered in the waters of baptism. So the good works of the saints follow them. That is a beautiful testimony that we read about in the book of Revelation. And, and we believe that. So that we're going to be able, on the day of judgment, right, 
uh, for the Corinthians to, to mutually boast of St. Paul and all of the good that he has done for them in bringing them the gospel and, and taking them through these sensitive matters of repentance and faith, right? And St. Paul will boast of the Corinthians that they received the gospel and this instruction. And they were blessed by God despite all of the, the severe attacks of the devil and, and, and the flesh, you know. Hmm. So, okay, so there's a, a mutual boasting on the last day that comes from, well, how does it relate to the matter of the good conscience then? Can you connect? Can we connect those two? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so the, the conscience is, of course, the verdict of the last day in a present tense. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. So I, if you were fishing for that, I'm glad that I found it for you. <laughs> so the, the trying uh, to help me connect the dots. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, so the, the boasting, and this is a godly boasting that we're talking about that, that happens here in first, or excuse me, second Corinthians chapter one. Now, as Paul moves on then from that boasting, he begins to talk about some of his travel plans and, and we're going to, the rest of our, our conversation really kind of is staged by these travel plans. He mentioned some in, at the end of the previous epistle in chapter 16, he talks a little bit about this here. And it seems that he's had a change in travel plans that maybe has caused some questioning of his of his conscience before them and the way it would stand before them that he's going to address here. So talk to us a little bit about the, again, the context, the background of his travel plans that he's bringing out here. Like you said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Uh, and then, you know, he talks about uh, uh, he, he just doesn't want to go on passing. He wants to actually spend some time with them as the Lord permits. Uh, but he's going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, right? And then kind of wait for the Lord to open the doors for him to go if possible. Uh, here, it could be that he's referring to those specific travel plans uh, and how they have not yet come to pass. Hmm. And and he is saying here at the beginning was I was I just well I mean was was I not telling the truth was I lying to you when I said I had these plans but here lo and behold I haven't shown up uh, no he says quite plainly in verse fifteen that he truly wanted to go to them to have and in my English translation it says the second experience of grace I as an English phrase I don't know what that means you know. <laughs> That sounds like something that a Pentecostal or character. Yeah, a burning of the bosom about. or something like that. No, yeah. the, so the Greek is a little more clear here. It indicates a, 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 a sort of a, having a second uh, gift or or, or a, mm. a, a second sort of time of grace with them. It, perhaps you could state it like that. So when St. Paul founded the, the Corinthian congregation, uh, he was there for quite a long time. You know, like it was a year and a half or something like that. He was there yeah. for a long time. And so what he's talking about, uh, having a second experience of grace, as it says in her English, he's likely talking about his desire, his, his true desire, when he wrote his first epistle, to go and spend just as much time with them because he sees how necessary it would be for them, right? Hmm. And it was so it was a it was a real desire, a real want. But when he didn't come, you can imagine some detractors in the congregation of Corinth saying, "Well, does he want to come or not?" It seems like he doesn't love us very much because he's not here right now. You you know how bickering and backbiting it all becomes. Uh, you know, it, it's it's sad that Christian congregations are oftentimes af afflicted for similar reasons, right? Mm. Uh, 
Uh, people will ask, well, you know, why hasn't the district president come to visit us down here in southeastern New Mexico? It's been 20 years since we've seen a district official. Not really. But that that apocryphal statement comes up again and again around here. It's really, really funny. Sure. You know, the, the idea is that we've been abandoned by the district and they don't care about us at all. Uh, President Maxwell, if you're listening, we all know that that's not true. We love you very much. That's right. Uh, that's right. Or, or maybe within <laughs> the context of the congregation, you go, well, why didn't the pastor come visit me? Those, oh, yeah, those that's right. For, things. Yeah, that's right. So there's a shut-in, right? And and the shut-in is being visited every two to three weeks, depending on what but things come up in the life of a pastor. Uh, and also with regards to the work of the church, such that, you know, the, the hurting member of the body of Christ does, needs and should receive greater attention for a time. And the rest of the body will have to make do until the pastoral attention is kind of returned, right? This is especially true in times of death, bereavement, mourning, uh, of great times of life cha- uh, life changes and these things. And the pastor is having to heap up tons of time and energy that would have been spent on the rest of the body of Christ, on maybe a particular person. And when it comes to, when the time comes for the pastor to return to his regular visitation schedule or, uh, you know, he might hear the words, well, pastor, I could see you totally don't care about me. <laughs> That's not true, you know. Uh, his desire was to be there for them, right? But, but it, you know, the, uh, the Lord, in fact, is the one who sets the pastoral agenda uh, much more than maybe the pastor himself would like to admit sometimes. Hmm. Um, now, d- so St. Paul is d- debasing his critics of this, uh, uh, of this idea that he said one thing and meant another. Hence the phrase, uh, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? That is contradicting myself, uh, acting hypocritically, we might say. Uh, and then, and then, kind of like with a, you know, with angry and frustrated kids who are asking, uh, why, like, why weren't you here when you said you would be here? And then the dad is struggling to explain. Well, this happened. This came up. I got stuck in work. I got in a car accident. Whatever. Yeah. The the da- in the same way as the dad redirects the kid's attention. So Saint Paul very pastorally, as a spiritual father, kind of moves the attention away from these thwarted travel plans to the fact that when God promises, uh, he is faithful and true, and all of the promises of God are yes in Christ, which I think is just brilliant on St. Paul's part, you know, that he says, here, you're getting worked up about all the wrong things, when in fact you should remember that the Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, uh, that he, that he is not yes and no, right? When you consider God's grace and mercy for you, it's not as if it's coming from the flesh hypocritically. Well, maybe God said yes, but maybe he means no or vice versa. Instead, what God promises, he remains faithful to keep. And those promises are fulfilled ultimately in and through Jesus, which brings us to this amazing verse in, in uh, 2 Corinthians one twenty, it's it's one of those that seems like it ought to show up pretty often in my own Bible studies and, and in teaching and preaching. All the promises of God find their yes in him, that is, in Christ. And that is pretty deep, you know. I mean, think back to the promises of God. When you consider the promises of God, you think of especially the unconditional promises of his salvation from the beginning of time. And when he made a promise to the devil that his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, 
the answer to that promise is yes in Christ. It's amazing, you know. And so also, as we go through the history of salvation in the Old Testament, God continues to elaborate on the promises of Jesus and the coming Savior, and it all finds its yes in the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. Hmm. And so then, in response to that word of yes that God has given in Jesus, our word of response is amen in in Jesus. I was recently talking to an adult confirmation class about the gift of prayer, and we were talking about the word amen. And you can tell me what you think about this, Pastor Fleming. I think I would rank amen as the second most important word for Christians. Word number one is Jesus. Word number two is amen. And I think I think maybe I've got a proof text here in 2 Corinthians for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what does the word amen mean? It's from the Hebrew that means truly. It's the same uh, word for trust or faith that we also get from the Hebrew, right? Um, so the Lord speaks to us. He speaks to us the name of Jesus. And we re- when we receive it, not as something that's doubt- doubted or uncertain or maybe, maybe not, but as truly something that is absolutely sure from God for our salvation, we say amen to it. Truly, amen. It is so. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, that, that it is when, when faith has been planted in the Christian heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is natural, absolutely natural, that the words that come out of the Christian's mouth thereafter are amen to the promises that, that God has made that found all of their, you know, the yes in Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, as, as Paul moves on then in this paragraph, it, he, he speaks in a, a very Trinitarian way. God establishes us with you in Christ, and the Spirit is the guarantee of this. Uh, take us into those last two verses of that paragraph. Yeah, that's, that's really fantastic. I'm glad that that you pointed that out. That helps me. Uh, so St. Paul, like the other apostles and evangelists, are very careful to teach uh, the threefold personhood of God along with the unity of his essence or being, right? And this is so from an Old Testament standpoint in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, is a Trinitarian statement. So also in Isaiah chapter uh, the, the Sanctus chapter 6, six. right? Yeah, yeah, 6 again. So in Isaiah chapter 6, you have the thrice hagion, the holy, 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 uh, uh, is the Lord God Almighty, and that is a Trinitarian statement. Jesus, when he institutes baptism, is according to the name of God, singular, and that he says, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The three distinct persons of the Holy Trinity. So also St. Paul is, is, uh, has these ways of inserting this subtly and, and very meaningfully uh, the Trinity into his various teachings, that God establishes us in Christ and has anointed us or sealed us in the Holy Spirit. And, and, and this helps to make sense of, you know, Lenski, he's this, uh, you know, 20th century uh, biblical interpreter and scholar. He wrote these commentaries your pastor uses to help prepare for sermons and Bible studies, and it's pretty good. Uh, he says that, obviously, St. Paul is talking about baptism here. And at first I read that comment, and I said, well, how, how could you be sure? Are, are you really sure? But you know what? If it's Trinitarian, more than likely it is a reference, yes, of course, to baptism and the salvation that comes through baptism. So we say amen to the glory, to, uh, to, to God for his glory, and that glory has been revealed to us ultimately and in first place through baptism, you know. Uh, so we have to remember this, that sometimes we think of mission work and the planting of churches as this 
I don't know, these coffee shop conversations where I apologetically argue somebody out of their unbelief and convince them to accept Jesus, right? I have this, my philosophy library and my apologetics library behind me, and there are philosophers that actually talk about church planting in this way. Uh, when in fact, church planting is much more concerning the conscience, right? The promises of God, it is mercy and peace for those who have been afflicted by sin and by a, a bad conscience, and how uh, we we are delivered from that death, that living death that we have in the flesh and in sin through the waters of baptism, you know? So baptism is the, the, the means of planting churches and expanding the church, you know, which is why we have no qualms as Lutherans and in bringing our babies to the church, you know, not waiting on them to grow up, to reach some mysterious age of decision so that they can make Jesus Christ their Lord and God, but rather recognize that Jesus Christ has already made himself their Lord and God through this, his promise present in the waters of baptism. Now, as, as our text continues and Paul begins to wrap up, at least to where we are going today, he again brings up his, his travel plans, which uh, previously he said, you know, I had this affliction in Asia, didn't, didn't make it like I wanted to. But now as he talks again about his travel plans, it also seems that he's got a reason behind it. It wasn't only just a, a matter of, of circumstance or a matter of this affliction happened and I couldn't get home. Kind of like, as you said, the, the dad who's, who's telling his kids why he didn't make it home for supper in time. He had a reason not in, in not coming. Talk, talk to us about this. Yeah, yeah. So like in verse 15, he says, uh, I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first. And implied there is maybe, but then I thought about it a little bit later and it seemed better I shouldn't come. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I honestly, I think that's exactly what's happening here. Like he... He originally had a desire, and then as the spiritual fraught situation of the Corinthians became clear, he realized that more may be gained by his absence than his presence. So maybe he could have done more uh, to have gone to the Corinthians, but instead of doing that, he let them, he stayed away from them uh, because he knew that his bodily presence among them would cause, at the end of the day, more grief than joy, right? Uh, now, Again, this brings up this question. Was there some sort of like intervening time when uh, like between the founding of the, the Corinthian congregation and the writing of Second Corinthians that he's made like a flash appearance? You know, here he is bearing the letter of First Corinthians and yelling at everybody. Then everybody gets scared and they weep. They break down. He's like, oh, that's a bad idea. And he goes off. Well, seriously, some scholars suggest these crazy things. And I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it could have happened. But I think that his presence here is, is probably a literary presence, and he realizes that bringing his physical presence into it along with the, the literary presence, the teaching presence that's already there, according to the epistle, according to the word, would have almost been too much for the Corinthians to handle as a congregation with regard to you know, the very spiritual problems they were struggling with and were well articulated in the first epistle. Uh, so a pastor has to think about this too. You know, I mean, we do this all the time where our desire is to be there for our members, to pray with them, to bless them. But sometimes, especially if somebody's upset, if somebody is struggling with uh, being called to repentance, the last thing they need is to, in fact, be hounded by the pastor. You know, it was an, it's enough for the pastor to state you are in sin, repent, Right or to speak a hard truth to somebody who's in denial of something that's staring them in the face. And then instead of 
pressing the point, pressing the point until they hardened themselves against the pastor just because of frustration, right, and exasperation. Um, give that word that you have spoken, I'm speaking to the pastors out there, of course, give that word you have spoken some time to, to, to bear fruit, right, uh, to, to work its way into the mind and the conscience. Now, that's hard for people nowadays. We have social media, the phones and the, and the emails, right? And when people are upset, what is the temptation? It's just to blast all the time, to emote at your opponent, with your friends, to keep on going and going and going instead of just taking a breath, stepping back, let it wait for a whole day. I can't tell you how many times it's actually helped me as a pastor uh, to, to hear about a situation where somebody's upset, especially with something that I've done. As a pastor, you're always making people a little bit upset. At least you should be, I think, if you're trying to do your job. And, and you know, my, I think to myself, I should call them. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to put it on my agenda to call them tomorrow to give myself a little bit of time and perspective to think about it and to let them think about it as well. And I guarantee that's saved me so much heartache as a pastor. And so when you're expecting this tense, fraught conversation the next day, oftentimes people have come to a better perspective, come to their senses, and they're, and they're ready to hear more uh, they're ready in a, in a more peaceful state of mind to receive instruction, to engage in conversation. Mm, yeah. Now, Pastor Fleming, he mentions here one whom he has pained, and that, that's going to really come up more in the, the next text as well, as, as Paul talks about the forgiveness to be extended. We've got about two minutes here on, on our conversation. Now pick up any details from that last verse of ours and help us to wrap things up on this section today. So my personal opinion is this might be the uh, the fellow that was caught in uh, sexual immorality uh, that was described at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It could also mean somebody who is uh, persisting in their false practice of the Lord's Supper and telling the rest of the Corinthians to do so. The fact of the matter is, we even though we can guess, we can't exactly be sure. What we do know is that St. Paul's uh, very direct and blunt teaching of God's law and gospel and Christian instruction in 1 Corinthians had some pretty profound personal effects, right? And so as a pastor, as you, as you preach and you teach, you have to be aware that you are going to walk into a minefield. You are going to step on toes. People are going to be upset, and you have to be ready to attend to the, uh, you know, to the wounded sinner <laughs> in, in, in the way that's most appropriate. Uh, and it's not something that is easily put into a pastoral care manual. It's something that honestly can is best learned through experience, you know, and, and dealing with uh, many Christians over many years and understanding how one person's different from another. Uh, that's why uh, you always want to call, I shouldn't say that, you want to call seminarians to, God bless them, you know, they got to get their experience. But, but you know, it, it, a lot of times it's good to, to call a guy from the field uh, for a congregation that has a lot of, you know, trouble, that, that has a lot of spiritual affliction, uh, who needs uh, uh, probably a very deft hand or a keen eye, somebody who's gained that experience through the, this practice of administering law and gospel appropriately. Yeah, God, God, God grant to us all that experience in the school of the Holy Spirit, and, and God grant us, no matter how long we've been out of seminary, to continue to learn from his teaching. Pastor Brian Flammy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 2. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus, which means that his promise to raise you from the dead 
the promise has been given a yes in Christ Jesus. And so what is left for us but to utter amen? Yes, yes, it is so. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.